0: Welcome to fintech impact this podcast is an exploration of the financial technology world interviewing different fintech entrepreneurs about what they do their story and what their impact is on consumers incumbents and the industry as a whole here's your host award-winning financial planner university lecturer and writer Jason Pereira.
1: Hello and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Just one brief reminder before we get started with today's guest. I will be speaking at the Wealth Professional Summit on Technology and Leadership on the subject of Advisor Office Efficiency on May 30th. I believe tickets are still available and please make it out if you can. So, moving on to the guest. So this is a rare, unique pleasure for me. I get to actually interview someone I did my undergraduate degree with, Clayton Fike. Clayton is the VP of sales at Quandl. Quandl is a big data company selling into specifically the financial space in general. And they use all kinds of data points or sell all kinds of data points into any number of different vendors, fund companies, hedge funds, and hopefully into other spaces as well. But essentially, they are really making their inroads on something called of data. And that's data that is data points you would never think that actually mattered necessarily, but can be really indicative of trends and changes in the economy. I'm going to let him describe that when we get there. And Quandl was recently named to one of the Forbes top 50 fintech companies to watch. So please lean in because this is going to be an interesting conversation. And with that, my interview with Clayton Fike.
0: Hello, Clayton. Hi, Jason. How are you? Good. Thanks
1: for coming in. So uh, tell us about Quandl. What does Quandl do? Sure.
0: So Quandl is the leading provider of alternative data in the world. We also have uh, financial and economic data. So we're essentially a data platform company.
1: Good. So uh, before we get into the company, the weeds there, tell us about you and your role there, how you came to be there.
0: Sure. So I'm the vice president of sales and business development, and um, I've been with the company for about two years now. And I previously worked at a a large data provider in the financial services space, uh, Thomson Reuters, for for about a decade and was involved in uh, various startups as well.
1: So uh, can you speak to the origin of the company and uh, what the founders were looking to do and how long it's been around?
0: Sure. So we're a proudly Canadian company. We're uh, based in Toronto. It was founded by two individuals, Tamar Camel and Abraham Thomas. And both of them previously had careers on the buy side as quants in fixed income. And they started the company really out of their frustration in terms of finding data and consuming it in an easy to use fashion.
1: I too share that frustration. It's amazing (laughs) how many companies are born in pain. So yeah, so continue. Sorry.
0: Yeah. So I mean, data traditionally in financial services has been delivered to the individual anyways, through a desktop terminal. So a Bloomberg or any other type of platform. And uh, it's really hard for kind of the modern financial analyst to extract data from that terminal and use it in the ways that they want, particularly for someone who's doing heavy quantitative analysis. Mm -hmm. So it was, uh, the platform was developed kind of in an open manner where clients can access any data set that they need to start, uh, you know, performing the analysis that they need to do unrestricted or unbundled from a terminal.
1: Good. So essentially just a straightforward laptop, desktop, iPad, they can basically potentially get access to all that. Exactly. Yeah. So tell us, let's get into the actual price itself. So first of all, let's tell everybody what alternative data is. And no people, it's not alternative facts. It's uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hit that must have hurt when they started using that term. But uh, yeah, alternative data. Tell me what that means.
0: Yeah, sure. So we started the business selling traditional financial and economic data, you know, market data that you could get from Bloomberg and Thomson Reuters and, and others. But what we've seen over the years is that that data has become very commoditized, right? The differentiator there is that an individual has to build a better model. Than mm-hmm. someone else in order to get an advantage because they're all using the same data.
1: Yeah, everybody's got, you can look up the price of any stock online anywhere. And some of them are real time. I mean, Google offers some real time quotes on certain exchanges. So, yeah, I see what you mean. It's, it's, it is commoditized.
0: Exactly. Prices, fundamental, um, you know, economic data, it's all kind of out there and, and available and open. Yeah. But alternative data, this term alternative data really comes from the idea of finding information or finding data that's never been used before in capital markets or in financial services and packaging it up or extracting insight from it that can give an investor an edge. So that's what we do every day is we go out hunting in the world and we talk to companies and various organizations that have interesting data and we start working together with them to find out, do they have something that could give an investor an edge or an informational advantage or particularly in the quantitative space what they refer to as alpha.
1: So give us some examples of what these alternative data
0: points are. Sure. So something unique that we did about a year ago is we we started working with various insurance companies in the US and you know we asked them if they could deliver to us some interesting information that could give us insights on on certain things and we kind of narrowed into the auto sector because of course You know, insurers are writing policies for new vehicles all the Mm -hmm. time. And so what these insurance companies give to us on a daily basis is the number of new insurance policy counts that -hmm. they write for each manufacturer and even model of new vehicle in the U.S. And it turns out that if you get, you know, a statistically significant number of insurance companies, you have a great sample size and it's Mm -hmm. an excellent proxy for, in this case, New car sales. So what we deliver to hedge fund our hedge fund clients every day is a feed of data that tells them how many Ford F-150s were sold yesterday in the US. And they collect that information throughout the month. And by the end of the month, when Ford reports their actual numbers,
1: These guys have had a leading edge to basically know what that number is. Exactly.
0: And that's the informational advantage.
1: So that's interesting because, I mean, you know, we've all heard the stories of, you know, hedge funds having satellite photos of how many cars are in a Walmart parking lot to try to figure that sort of thing. So the rabbit hole of how many possible data points you can find that would be indicative of what what the trend is, is is insane.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, you think of uh, someone making a purchase on Amazon, for example, Mm -hmm. right? So who knows about that purchase besides the individual and Amazon?
1: The shipping company
0: the shipping company, there are companies that scrape the web and capture this data as yep. you're as you're making the transaction. Uh, your credit card company certainly knows about it. The suppliers of the products to Amazon know about the transaction. Shipping, the trucking company, even the camera in your apartment lobby, hmm. you know, knows about That's the true. delivery yep. of that. So you think of all the different data points that are available to make up that transaction and When you start combining different types of data, you can really form an interesting picture on what's happening in the economy. And really, the possibilities are endless because now with the Internet and Internet of Things and drones and all these new technologies that the world is developing, there's just more and more data, more and more data to be mined for insight.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's the the mosaic you can put together on people's lives from just what is publicly available. is quite shocking and it's only getting bigger. So in a lot of ways, you guys are like kind of the financial services version of Palantir in some ways, right? You're a big data play in that space. So interestingly enough, so let's just go down the rabbit hole here of auto insurance. So you've done some, I think you saw something about a deal with Tesla. So, I mean, I would think that the big issue there amongst auto insurers that they're going to have to struggle with is pricing of risk on things like autonomous cars. Is that something you guys have been helping them with, looking at? or So
0: we've actually just launched a product around the tracking of Tesla sales. Because with the new Model 3 that they're building, of course... You know, I have the, one on order. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're probably wondering when you're going to receive it.
1: I'm hoping it's at the end of my current yeah.
0: lease, okay? I've
1: got, I've got buddies who got their notice just yesterday, so everybody's
0: very excited. Well, there's you and about 400,000 other yeah. individuals that have ordered. And everyone's wondering if they can make their production targets. So I'm going to lean in now because yeah. I very much want to know if they
1: can actually hit their production target because this is important to me.
0: Well, the, the way that we try to draw insight is the example I mentioned earlier where we're using the insurance policies to track when the, those cars are delivered, because ultimately they're registr- when they get delivered, they're insured.
1: So you can track their actual production rate based on that. You can extrapolate out. So not so much on the insurance side, but just still more so on the on, in terms of the big macro picture. That makes sense. Exactly. And
0: you know the other interesting thing with with insurance data is you can also start to learn a lot about the demographics of those 400 individuals. So who's buying the car? What gender, what age, what other cars do they own? And you can start to form an interesting picture around the customer base of Tesla. And from what we've seen, that information is just simply not available in the world.
1: Well, it's too new, right? It's too new. Yeah. So I see two data points on your website. One is alternative data, which we discussed, which is all this stuff that no one thinks to track, but my goodness, going to give you a lot of insight and correlate to very important things. Core financial data is the other topic. So what does that uh, vertical look like?
0: Yeah. So for us, that's really where our business started. And it was, like I mentioned, delivering traditional financial economic market Mm -hmm. data just in an easier to to use fashion yeah exactly
1: so when you look at all the i'm actually staggered i I came across i'm trying to find the site now but i came across the number of data feeds you guys are using or products you have and i'm just staggered by the number of data points like how many different pieces are you collecting these days like do you you even
0: know (laughs) that you lost track so we have (laughs) dozens and dozens of different providers that give us hundreds of data sets i think there's something like billions of uh, api calls you know every month billions to our to our website We have over 250,000 individuals that are consuming data from us on a regular basis. So, you know, a lot of those are are folks maybe in the retail space that are using Mm -hmm. data for anything, all the way up to the sophisticated quant hedge fund that manages tens or even hundreds of billions of dollars.
1: So it's wonderful because, I mean, you're helping in, in various ways. So you're you're helping the underlying businesses better understand their business through data flows. And then you're taking that and you're also helping people understand the economy better and, and make better decisions. So in terms of your distribution, like where is your client base? So you are based in Canada, but I would think that this market is very much global.
0: Yeah. So our, our individual or kind of personal users are all over the world. But on the institutional side, particularly with alternative data, it's a newer space. And as As you'd expect, the early adopters are in the large financial centers, New York, London. We have a handful of clients in Asia. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So those are the firms that have the resources to spend on integrating and and adopting new technologies.
1: Absolutely. So I'm not going to ask you if Bridgewater's a client, I'm just going to (laughs) assume... (laughs) So yeah, that's, that's fascinating. You talk about the ease of consumption. I know on your website, you talk about APIs, So you're letting people build their own tools over top of your data sets. You mentioned Python. So build their own websites around that Excel, which is the, of course, the, (laughs) the utility belt uh, of of all that. And then uh, you also mentioned R, which, you know, geeks who are quants like me will, will highly respect you for doing that. You know, in terms of how people are using that data, what do do you see as the most common uh, application for that?
0: Well, I mean, we do have a lot of fintech clients as well. And okay. so they're taking data through our API and, and pulling it into various applications. But I'd say the regular user is using a tool, like you mentioned, you know, say Python or R, for example, to conduct analysis on the data with most of the financial data and economic data. It's, it's fairly well understood and mm-hmm. it can be used for back testing, of course. But like I said, that type of data is somewhat commoditized. We find that our quant clients use those types of tools to conduct back tests on alternative data. Because it's never been used before, and it's really hmm. unknown as to what type of correlations might exist. Exactly. Yeah. So
1: yeah, you think that the you find a piece of data you know related to again car sales and leading car sales. So how does that correlate to actual changes in the market price prior to the announcement? Like how much is the market digesting that news in advance? Stuff like that. I and mean, that's just a simple. I mean, you can, yeah, we can go down the rabbit hole of how many applications there are for this. It's insane.
0: Yeah. I mean, lots of those data sets require some type of back testing. But you know, I'll give you an example of another alternative data set. That's maybe more applicable to a fundamental or discretionary type of uh, investor. We actually went out and found four or five different data sets that complemented each other and we pulled them all together to form one database, which essentially tracks corporate jets
1: <laughs> okay. around the world. All right, good. Uh, and, sales, I take it, or just well, actual where they're going?
0: Actually where they're going. <laughs> wow. So... so we mm-hmm. know on a daily basis where the executives of most major Fortune 500 companies are spending their time. Are spending their time. And you know why hedge funds are interested in that? Because of they potential want the, M&A.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I was going to say like they want to see how much time they're spending in Augusta. Oh, well, that too. There's some
0: interesting trips to the South that we've uh, Yeah, I was going to say, well, why is
1: Georgia such a big place for people to fly to? In April. That's right.
0: <laughs> in April. But... No. Uh, but you know that type of data it doesn't really require a lot of backtesting. Of course, you want to look and see: did the executives fly to a particular small town before they bought a company that uh, was headquartered there? Mm-hmm. That's interesting to see. But that's more of a, you know specific use case yeah. as opposed to putting it into a a quantitative model.
1: It's interesting. I mean, the you know we're we're doing this uh, we're recording this shortly after the entire Facebook fiasco, and you know there's always the Big Brother concerns about stuff like this. But I mean, the reality is is that a plane lands a plane lands like anyone who's standing around can see it right it's just a matter of anyone who sees an executive driving through a town or entering a building can see it we're just better at now collecting and sharing that data than we used to be right
0: exactly this you know in our view this is just innovative research yeah. all this data is publicly available we've just done the the grunt work to pull it all together into something that yeah. draws insight
1: so i mean i mean i think the challenge is a identifying data sources but in b saying you know what's useful and what's not i mean like if you're basically looking at every data point that's available. Uh, publicly available at this point, you're going to drown in that, right? So, how is there a definitive process around how you figure out marketability and feasibility of these things?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, we have a really smart data science team at Quandl. I'm impressed every day by uh, <laughs> by this, the work that they're able to do statisticians, computer science folks, and we also have quite a few individuals that formerly worked on Wall Street. And so we try to think like a hedge fund would think when we're evaluating data. And we kind of take it through this process where data comes in the door. We do some quick checks to determine the quality of the data. Absolutely, We might throw it out right away, but the data that passed those tests, then we start to do some research on it and try to find correlations. Could this be used to predict stock price here or an economic indicator there? And so we take it through a fairly fairly stringent process before it, we actually turn it into a product. So where are these things being sourced? All over. We actually do a lot of our marketing to corporations and organizations and encourage them to work with us to determine if they might have something of value. Because you know nowadays, data is being seen more and more as an asset and companies are trying to figure out. How can they monetize it? it? Exactly. So
1: you're coming in, solving that problem and creating a marketplace at the same time.
0: Exactly. And there's not just the financial services or the hedge fund uh, segment where there's a market for this. Of course they're able to well, pay a lot of money for yeah, this data. They're the bleeding
1: it, edge of it, right? Like that's, that's where it is. But when you start thinking about applications to governments, applications to anyone who services anyone for that matter, I mean, it's just, you're in a lot of ways collecting the kind of data that the Amazons, the Googles of the world are collecting on everybody, but you're doing it from different avenues.
0: Right. I mean, of course a hedge yeah. fund would want to know where the executives of a company are traveling, but so would so its competitors. And
1: show, so should the SEC, yeah, right? Like this is the thing, right? So you look at the, you know, it are it works both ways. It works in terms of regulation, but it also works, you know, you can say it's an edge, but it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of, I, I'm staggered by the opportunity here. So the, um, you have about, I think you said 40 people working in house. Yes. So how many of those are in the data science team? Like how do operations look essentially within the company?
0: Yeah. I mean, about half the company is focused on either data engineering development or data science. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's obviously a huge focus and, and we do all that work here in Toronto.
1: And then there's sales offices
0: elsewhere? No, sales offices in Toronto. Okay. So we, we do do quite a bit of traveling. But uh, like I said, our clients are mostly focused in major financial centers.
1: And how much of your time, I think, especially in a sales capacity, is spent on trying to educate the end consumer as to what's possible? I mean, you're going to companies and saying, hey, you have all this data. Like, I mean, they cross that bridge and realize we need to monetize this versus you saying, hey, you have something that can be monetized? Like, is, is that happening? Is it more of an education piece or more of a, hey, they're looking for a solution?
0: You know, there, I think there's still some some education that, that needs to take place. And we try to do that through, uh, you know, our, our various uh, marketing outreaches to, you know, companies But uh, there are a lot of firms that, like I said, have come to the realization they have something of value. And, you know, it takes a lot of political will internally in a company to Mm. make the decision to give someone else their data or to try to sell their data. And the companies that have gone through that process and are a little more innovative, certainly they're easier to work with. But yeah, I mean, like I said, more and more companies are coming to this realization and uh, we try to help them through that process by... Giving them examples of how we might have worked together with with other yeah. companies, you take these insurance companies for example. They're they've been around for a long, long time, and uh, you know it's tough to get them to part with their data. <laughs> I'm amazed you had
1: anyone part with your any insurance company part with their data.
0: Yep. That's right. There's um, processes in place, and we haven't really touched on the legal or regulatory aspects of this. Huge. But, yep. You know, certainly with an insurance company, there's a lot of legal hurdles that that they need to go through or or be comfortable with.
1: Yeah, I think we've got to be clear about this. You're not not giving away Todd Smith's mailing address and the fact that he owns a Ford F 150 at this location. He's a data point of maybe that goes as deep as male age XYZ and living in said region. But that doesn't really tell anyone anything until they go actually looking for the guy driving the F-150 in that neighborhood, right?
0: Exactly. I mean, a hedge fund doesn't really care about a Todd Smith. No. They just care about the aggregate. Yeah. So if that information is anonymized, it's just as valuable to them.
1: So. I mean, that's an interesting kind of paradigm shift for these companies, right? Because typically, especially when new and financial services companies, they literally look at data like as if it's it's got to be kept like close to the chest and it's their advantage, right? Mm-hmm. Like data being a friction point has always been, I think, a competitive advantage of them is the way they look at it when, when they have scale. But meanwhile, I mean, like the way I look at it is as... You know, even small to medium sized players or anyone starts to put this out there, then that diminishes the value of you keeping yours hidden, right? Because you know what, if they can put together enough of your competitors to have a picture of what you're doing, now you're just the only one who's just not monetizing for any for no good reason.
0: Exactly. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. And the interesting thing that we've been doing since we got in the alternative data space is when we're working with partners we try to lock up those relationships exclusively. And that way we can control the flow of the data and how it bring it to market and really determine whether, how broadly we want to sell it. And to your point, if it's too widely available, then that could create problems for the individuals that uh, don't have the data or Mm -hmm. have their own data and it diminishes in value because now it exists uh, everywhere else.
1: I'm pretty sure we're going to set a record for the number of times the words data is used in a podcast on this episode, but that's okay. Yeah. It's relevant. So (laughs) let's go back to regulation for a second. So I mean, one of the big things that's happening in a global trend is GDPR, which is launching in the EU shortly. Is that having an impact on your ability to access anything? Or is that something that's really because you're not going down the minutia of the person is not really
0: impacting you? It's something we're monitoring very closely. Certainly, the the laws and regulations in the EU differ quite a bit than, than those in the U.S. <laughs> yeah, you can
1: say that. <laughs> yeah.
0: And I think maybe as a result, there's more alternative data available in the U.S. as opposed to Europe. Certainly, our, our European institutional clients... They have more access to data around the markets in the US than they, they do around the EU yeah. for, for those types of reasons. Certainly when it comes to things like credit card data or transaction data, which is very popular in the US now in terms of the institutional, sophisticated institutional funds yeah. in the US, you know, they're collecting data from various credit card companies and forming pictures around retail companies. Yeah. Doing that in the EU is much more difficult because of some of those laws and regulations.
1: Yeah, and one wonders. I mean, it's it's. I mean, I, I will never stand. You know, I will never take the side that someone shouldn't have the right to their own data. Like they should. You know, if you produced it and you are a consumer, it's yours. And frankly, you should, you have the right to be forgotten and all of that. So. You know I got to say that essentially I look at it it's not even from a from a pure profit motive. I mean like that's not it. The ability to have such aggregate data in general on an anonymized basis as much as possible is a value to all of society, quite frankly, not just business and enterprise and you know we talk hedge funds which you know everybody automatically they're your clients, but a lot of people in the general public be like, oh big nasty hedge funds trying to make money off my data. The reality is is that again, like I said, the ability to take this and use this for sociological study the ability to use this for government. The untapped opportunities on on just understanding how humanity actually acts versus the way we claim to act on surveys is is enormous.
0: Right. No, absolutely. There's uh, really interesting insights. And and, if you think about it, we report or the government reports GDP numbers or various economic indicators on a, a monthly or quarterly basis. The whole idea behind new types of data is that you can really get a picture of GDP in real time or some of these economic indicators in real time.
1: Well, I mean, even that doesn't, it goes back. I mean, I feel, I think I, I don't know if I remember this correctly, but something to the effect of, it was Greenspan who I think he said, he looked at something like dry cleaners, net tax bills as a data point. Right, because that was an indicator to how many people with suits were actually getting them washed, right? And that was an indicator to white collar job growth, right? Right. You know, so this sort of thinking goes back a long way. The issue is how do we basically gather that? And now it's just so much more easy than it used to be.
0: Exactly. And you know, with hedge funds, you're right. Um sometimes they have a, a bad reputation, but think, you know, folks should keep in mind that many of these big funds are managing their pension money. Exactly. You know, the, the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board, <laughs> you yeah. know, uses these hedge funds to manage Canadians' retirements.
1: It's amazing how the conversation changes and you realize that you have a, you have a skin in the game. Uh, I've known people who've worked for major developers who would go to community organization meetings and the organization was losing it on them. And one guy just basically piped up and said, let me ask you something. How many of you are te- retired teachers or teachers in general? And like a handful of people, People put their hands up and he goes, you know what I'm doing? I'm paying your pension. So suddenly they were <laughs> quiet, right? And sure enough, all of them at the end of them were like, You're paying my pension? Like, how are you pay my pension? Oh, we own you? Oh. Suddenly, they weren't as concerned about the impact on their community, right? Yeah. So, yeah, when you have skin in the game, it's a very different conversation. But nevertheless, I think we think we all have a vested interest in the bill in, in the better understanding of humanity and our actions, efficient right? Efficient markets, absolutely. And efficient yeah. markets. There's only there is the potential for people to get there first and, and reap the benefits of that. But there's a bigger potential for us all to basically benefit from a greater wow. understanding in general. So all the – like I said, I'm floored by all your data products. So give me an example of some of the more esoteric ones you've been doing. I mean, you gave me the example about insurance companies linking the F-160 uh, example. But give me some other ones here that would, that would, that would fascinate people in the, in the financial space specifically.
0: Yeah. I mean, um, there's everything from um, tracking the movement of various commodities over ships to – you know I, <laughs> I mentioned the, uh, the corporate jets. That's,
1: oh, that one's hilarious.
0: A lot of interesting data comes from what we call – Again, I'm going for a record with the number of times we can say data, data. but uh, (laughs) it comes from data exhaust. And what we mean by that is companies have operations, you know, of course, that they're in terms of running their business, but there's a lot of data exhaust that comes out of those operations that they're not monetizing. And so just collecting data about how a company might interact with its customers or how it might interact with its suppliers, that can tell you a lot about not only that company, but their sector and all the companies that they interact with. So there's lots of information out there. You know, the insurance example would be, would be one of data exhaust where Mm -hmm. they're running their insurance business, but little did they know that there's a little cherry there
1: that basically could have been marketed. Exactly. So, I mean, you mentioned all the data, all all the API calls you were getting. I'm curious, how much total data in terms of capacity are you sitting on? Is that a stat you guys track? I would think.
0: Well, I mean, like I said, we, we have billions and billions of API calls every month. In terms of the size of data. But do you uh, host
1: it I, or are the vendors still hosting it?
0: No, we, we have it all in our cloud, okay. um, So, which really has unlimited capacity. So in terms of the... Uh, <laughs> so then you must be on AWS or something then, right? <laughs> exactly. Okay, so, exactly. Yes. That's our, our platform. You, is, you is can't say unlimited
1: unless you're on one yeah. of four vendors in the world.
0: So. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's something that just continues to grow exponentially Every day,
1: I would be very curious as to what your AWS bill was, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure that that is a competitive data point that you're not putting out there. In terms of, how, so this has got to be challenging. Like, how do you price all this information?
0: So, with some of the more commoditized data, it's priced very competitively. You know, mm-hmm. if you want end of day stock prices to yeah. power your portfolio, now you don't have to buy a, a you know a terminal to mm-hmm. do that um, or a, an expensive feed. We deliver that at a relatively low price and it's by the data set if you just want to buy end of day stock prices you just you just want to buy us equity fundamentals you know we, we price it that way if you're looking at you know if you're a hedge fund and in your you want to buy alternative data of course it's priced based on the you know marginal value that you're going to get from using the data <laughs> which uh, for many large funds can be uh, a lot of money.
1: Fair enough. So those big fees, already is playing. You're extracting a big chunk of that. That's good to know. Yeah. The uh, and I get that. I mean, it's it's more valuable now. I'm I'm curious. How does the kind of revenue share or purchase? How much goes back to the vendor of that data?
0: Yeah. So we we do have revenue sharing agreements with them. And you know, these firms, for the most part, like I said, they haven't necessarily sold data in the past, let alone sell sold data into capital markets. Yeah. So um, they look to us for gauging the market and what type of price point, of course, the legal and compliance issues, and then the technology platform. So we share in that. Ultimately, they own the data, their data Absolutely. From, from their operations. But it's a revenue, we'll share, share, which it's is, a revenue share, which is,
1: share. I mean, attractive, yeah. I think. You know, you don't have to pony up a big chunk of change to get the data in the first place that you're not 100% sure you can market. And then essentially all you're saying is, hey, let us try to be the broker for it and we'll take the spoon. And yeah, it makes yeah. makes perfect sense. It's a sense. Nice, nice partnership. Absolutely. So in terms of competitors, like what do you, you know, how many players, are, there's a lot of big data plays out there, but mm-hmm. specific to your kind of alternative data space, which is, I think, far more of a blue ocean than a red one, how many are you dealing with? Or do you know of?
0: Well, I mean, I I guess I said in the introduction that we're one of the world's leading uh, yeah. providers of alternative data, and and we believe that. I mean, there are not too many companies out there that are, are doing what we're doing in terms of taking data and bringing it to uh, capital markets. You know, unique data. Of course, there are the large providers like the Bloombergs and Thomson Reuters uh, of the world. And, and they have, you know, kind of traditional data. And of course, we might compete with them a little bit mm-hmm. with our traditional core data. But on the alternative data side, there's a couple trends emerging. One is there's a couple companies out there that almost act like consultants where they let funds know about interesting data that they've found, but they don't necessarily do the work to structure it. And uh, vet it and ultimately turn it into some sort of product that can be easily consumed. They kind of, you know, point clients in the direction of, of the client and then the, the data source and the clients responsible for, for doing all that work. Um, so we feel like we're, we're really the entire spectrum of, of the value chain there. All the way from finding the data to delivering it in a, a way that's insightful.
1: Yeah, and I mean the the fact that you don't have a legacy business of providing terminals and specific workstations, the fact you support Python, great. They can literally design their own internal website that's going to spit out that data point in whatever relation to its relationship to whatever we want, or you have an, you know you have an API, so it's tying into whatever other program they're using in the back end. That's fantastic. That's the kind of flexibility that, frankly, is very much on trend, and it can only be done by company. Well, it's easier you're done by companies who don't have the legacy issues that you that those people face.
0: Well, you're absolutely right, yeah. and uh, you know, there's a really interesting deal that took place about two months ago in uh, the data world or the the financial data world. The private equity firm Blackstone actually bought a large piece of the financial and risk business from Thomson Reuters, majority yes. share. Oh, yeah. And it's, it was interesting, the comments from Blackstone was that they said that they see the future of the business as the data feed as opposed to the data terminal. So I think that-
1: Agreed. I mean, it's- yeah. And this is the general trend in terms of the creating of APIs for everything. I mean, you now have people who are building your entire infrastructure essentially to just be, to sit below nothing but an API, right? And let people develop their own front end if they choose to. I mean, here's your front end, but if you don't like it and you want to customize and do whatever X, Y, Z, here it is, right? Much better than trapping it in the one one system. And as much as I, you know, still think Bloomberg is awesome, the, uh, having to use a specialized keyboard and all that. And, and, you know, still, I remember back before there was even point and click capacities to that capabilities to that. And that was just, Ooh, typing in the DOS, man. It was brutal. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I remember that command? What's that command? Oh, don't no, look in the book. <laughs> like, oh, man. Yeah, That's the world's changing. It is. It's uh, for, for the better, for the better. So can you speak? I mean, you guys are backed by a couple of venture capital plays and, and some size ones. Can we speak to who, you, who supported you on this?
0: Yeah, there's two um, venture capital firms that participated in our, our two rounds. We've done a, a series B now, August Capital and uh, Nexus Ventures. Mm-hmm. So they're great uh, partners to have.
1: Good. and I mean some of those people have like, we have some background of them. I mean, one of them was a, a former board member of Microsoft and a well-known venture player. Uh, and then that was he was behind August and Nexus. Who are the people behind Nexus? Can you speak to them?
0: Yeah, I mean they have strong ties with India and um, right. very strong in uh, you know the tech space. So. You know they're both based in uh, in California, so it's great to have investors in in the U.S.
1: So, in terms of challenges that the company's facing going forward, I mean, what do you think the biggest challenges you guys the, the on your horizon at this point?
0: Yeah, I mean, for us, we're always focused on finding new sources of data that are out there. You know, it's a it's a bit of a, a land grab situation right now where firms are trying to find the most interesting data and bring it to market and. Like I said, because we try to lock those up exclusively, we're really out there hunting for the next best thing constantly. And so it's a matter of uh, always having good product and then making sure that we're able to deliver it to our clients in an insightful way.
1: Good. I mean, we talked about regulation earlier, but I mean, that's always got to be a looming concern, right? Like theoretically, you know, just like any business, any business could be eliminated with a stroke of a pen, right? With the governments. But this is, a, I think, a more timely and contentious moment in, in history for this type of thing where we're just, you know, governments are still trying to figure out how to deal with the open accessibility of data. It is.
0: Yeah. It's something we're, like I said, watching very closely, yeah. but we think ultimately, you know with with more transparency and just yeah. the more availability of uh, information out there that uh, the trends are on our side.
1: Have you guys been at the table at some of these discussions? I mean, a lot of the entrepreneurs I talk to get invited to government symposiums to discuss it with with the leaders themselves. So, you've been having a voice in that?
0: Yeah, certainly we've we've spoken on on panels about it and it's something that I think the entire industry is is looking quite closely at. I still think we're in the early days of this type of data adoption within capital markets. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are you know, quite a few firms now that, like I said, have invested in technology and data science, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and they're at the forefront. But then there is a really, really large part of the market that is still kind of wrapping its head around how this is being used. And that is changing every day. More and more firms are making the decision to get into alternative data, get into the technologies behind it and and data science. And so, like I said, I think we're in early yeah. stages.
1: It makes sense, right? Your early adopters are going to be the ones who are most willing to go out there on a limb and spend the money to basically try to get that alpha experience. And you know, they typically been the ones be, who make the most money off what they're spending. So you, the hedge funds make sense. They charge the most. They're going to invest the most, right? But I mean, I know several mutual fund companies that are now adopting some of what you're talking about, yeah. right? So it makes sense that then it basically gets down to a more consumer level. I think the one, you know you'll probably hit a brick wall when it comes to dealing with the brokers directly because- there's just they don't have the resources the time or money to basically digest all this, and understand it all. But you'll probably get do very well at the analyst stage, right? And at the analyst level. So yeah, I mean, I, I see that that capital markets. I mean, in that alone, I mean, if you get the, the major mutual fund companies, the major portfolio managers in the world, the major hedge funds, I mean, that's a, that's a very
0: sizable market. So yeah, no, you're right. Some of the long only mutual fund managers are now adopting this type of data in their investment analysis process, and yeah. and that's a really good sign because it shows that uh, it's being more widely adopted uh, within the market and certainly on the sell side there's a a need for more and more innovative research and more and more ways for sell side firms to differentiate you see some of the regulations in in europe around uh, mifid Mm 2 and sell side firms need to now charge for their research it can't be bundled with uh, trading commissions so firms need to differentiate. I'm it, all about transparency of right? <laughs> pricing in this
1: industry. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, you know, be able to differentiate and be able to actually attribute value to the specific thing and stop saying, hey, the free toaster is free, but I'm charging you for this.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: And it's, uh, you know, you're right on trend. Like I said, I know one fund company, which we'll talk about off air, but they spent eight figures on just the development of internal consoles for their own staffing. I wouldn't be surprised if you were selling into them based on some of the stuff I've seen them track, <laughs> but it's uh, it's interesting. So the what excites you? about what's going forward on this business? Like what do you think the biggest opportunities you guys have yet to tap are or what, what changes do you think are,
0: are really going to make an impact? Yeah, I mean, we're really excited because like I said, I think this is um, early innings for this space. We're excited when we, you know, see a new data set that gives an informational advantage that the world has never seen before. That's really Pioneer exciting. Pioneer
1: frontier stuff, right? Some like, of the yeah.
0: conversations we have around the office are interesting. It's like, wow. This data can predict that?
1: I would love to be a fly on the wall for some of those. I think that would be unbelievably fascinating. Yeah,
0: yeah. it's- I uh, won't be, I know, because I won't be let in, uh, <laughs> but nevertheless. It, it's really exciting. So we think that there's just an endless supply of interesting data out there, and, yeah. and it just needs to be mined properly. Well, I think I
1: remember hearing, was it last year, that something like more books were published last year than like all the collective- like 50, 60, 70 years prior to that. If you look at the last 10 years, it's more than all of human history prior to that. Just because like literally you can, you know, if you want to write a 10 page book, go ahead and publish it on Amazon. It's done, right? Like that's, yeah. The friction is there. So the amount of data we're spitting out and the amount of places we're collecting it. And I mean, I sit here wearing an Apple, we both sit here wearing Apple watches, monitoring every possible thing that Apple will let us do on this thing. And we're actually creating an ocean of it. And no one's figured out how to navigate the ocean yet.
0: Well, it's funny. Your listeners have probably seen this article, but The Economist came out with a, a feature called "Data is the New Oil." And, and <laughs> you're it's, absolutely right. It's about how you know there's data all over the world. It just needs to be drilled for and mined and and then refined, right? The same way that oil was over uh, over previous decades in the ground. So that's a good uh, analogy, I think.
1: Now you guys were named to some sort of top 100 list, I believe, recently, weren't you? What was that?
0: Yeah, we were we were named to the Forbes FinTech 50 list That's for well, 2018. Wow, which uh, yeah, we're very proud of
1: my first Forbes FinTech 50 uh, <laughs> interview. I got to I got to hunt down everybody else on that list. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how they uh, how they came across us. We were the only Canadian firm, so we were really uh, proud of that. Oh, congratulations! Um, and uh, yeah, there's some some big names on there, so um, it's great to be included. Fantastic. Any parting thoughts for the listeners? No, I think your listeners are obviously. Innovative and thinking about uh, fintech and or terrified of it and trying to understand, so which is why I started
1: the podcast in the first place. But continue,
0: but uh, (laughs) no. So I would would just say definitely watch this space, the alternative data space, because I think that it's going to continue to evolve very quickly. Um, Certainly with these new technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning, natural language processing. Yeah, data is the fuel to so yeah. all of those uh, technologies. Well, it can't so- work
1: without massive quantities of it. And then, the, I mean, you mentioned and we should have talked about that at greater length. But I mean, frankly, the mind boggles to think of what they're going to find because they will find correlations, relationships and other kind of th- other things that make sense that we as individual human beings would never see from the sheer volume of what we'd have to digest to get there.
0: Yeah, which might be a little terrifying. <laughs> it's a little a little bit.
1: I mean, uh, you know, did you ever hear that? I don't know if you ever hear about that test I think IBM or someone did about uh, they developed two AIs and they started talking to each other. And that was, on, that was a test. But then the problem was within a, within a very short period of time, they developed their own language and even the developers couldn't tell what was going on. So they unplugged it because they're like, this is this is a little bit terrifying. Maybe we created Skynet by accident, yeah. um, but hopefully not that severe. But yeah, I mean, it's, you're right. You, I mean, you're creating the fuel for this and everyone's, everyone's focused on AI, but it's really, it's like, that's fine,
0: but you got to feed the beast. You got to feed the beast. You need to power it with something. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, continue to watch this space. And I think it's really going to impact uh, financial services and capital markets the same way that the you know the Bloomberg terminal did in, the, in the early eighties you know the digitization of financial statements um, and I'm
1: sure your partners are hoping it does because you know they wouldn't mind being on the Forbes list themselves. <laughs> Yeah. Or mayor of New York, you know, whichever comes first. (laughs) Anyway, this has been an absolute pleasure. It's nice to have someone come in and and talk about big data because it's such a big part of what's going on in technology in general. So thank you for making the time, Clayton. Very much appreciated.
0: My pleasure, Jason. Thanks so much for having me.
1: So that was my interview with Clayton Fike. Thank you very much again for listening, and I hope you join us next time. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever it is you get your podcasts. Thank you, and have a great day.